And I wondered what I should share with you all this evening. I thought inasmuch as uh, I was supposed to tell you last night of what I think will probably happen in the immediate future on this earth, we may take a look at what's going to happen in the more, pardon, in the less immediate future particularly after heaven comes down and is reunited to earth, which is where those of us who are in Christ are going to. So this evening we can get a glimpse of that wonderful new earth and permanent abode of the blessed, which will enter after the second coming of our Lord. Shall we then read together Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither. I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, 
and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, with the reed twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise Enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever.
It's a great passage of Scripture. You just want to read it and then shut the Bible and say amen. What more can you say about it? It's practically the end of the Word of God. And yet, there are at least three schools of thought that would interpret this wonderful passage of Scripture. There are those that say that this is a picture of the church here and now. Period. It is nothing more than that. Many famous people I could mention who take this position. And there are others who say, no, this is not a picture of the church on earth here and now. It is a picture of the church in heaven right now where the souls of the departed Christians go. Period. Then there are those who say, no, this is neither a picture of the church on earth here and now, nor is it a picture of the church in heaven here and now, but it is a picture of the descent of the church and its environment from heaven after the final judgment down onto the new earth. It is a picture of the permanent earthly abode of the people of God after the final of judgment in future and unto all eternity. Now, it seems to me that uh, something can be said for each one of these positions as to what this is describing. And uh, certainly, it seems to me to have some references to the life of the church on earth here and now. But I think the overwhelming tenure of these two chapters is particularly to suggest the final state and the final abode of the people of God on earth. I don't think it's so easy to see this as something that's happening in heaven for the simple reason that we're distinctly told in this chapter that uh, the heavenly Jerusalem descends down from heaven onto the earth. And you're given a very earthly description of what happens here. But of course it's true that when we're in Christ Jesus, the moment we believe in the Lord, there is a sense in which we can say we have right then passed from darkness into light and that we've received the heavenly life here and now so that the kingdom of heaven is among us so that as Paul says, Ephesians 2 verse 6, we who are still alive on earth here and now do right now sit with Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. And there's also a sense in which uh, there is a continuation of our earthly Christian life in heaven after our death and a further continuation of the heavenly life when after the final judgment we come back to earth with the heavenly life, not without it, and live here on earth unto all eternity. Now those who feel that this relates only to the condition of the church here and now uh, find support for their view in, uh, in pointing out that this is not supposed to be a literal city in their judgment descending from heaven onto the earth, uh, but that it says a little later in verse 9 of uh, Revelation 21, the angel says to John, Come hither and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and a high mountain, and he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem. In other words, the Lamb's bride is the holy Jerusalem, and that all of this is simply symbolical. That's what they say. 
And there is indeed a sense in which we can say that uh, the people of God, the church rather than the building in which they live and their final geographical environment, uh, be it in heaven to come or in the new earth after that, uh, there is a sense in which we can say that God is centrally present in the hearts of the believers and that they are the church. But I don't think that this can possibly be the full meaning of this passage, and I'll tell you why. Because there are elements related here which have not been fulfilled yet and which won't even be fulfilled in heaven, but will only be fulfilled after the final judgment. Notice, for example, in in verse 1, it says there was no more sea. It just is not true to say that there is no sea as far as the Christians are concerned once they're saved in this life here and now prior to the second coming. That's not true. And further... You'll notice that it says in verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. It's not true that Christians, while they're on this earth, even if they're saved, that they don't shed tears any longer. Notice it says further in verse 4, there shall be no more death. It is not true to say that Christians, once they're saved in this earth here and now, will not die in the sense that they won't have to be buried. That's not true. And so it seems to me that there are a number of very clear evidences in this chapter that point to the fact that at least some of it, in fact most of it, point to a condition which we've not yet arrived at. It is true that when we're in Christ Jesus, the old things have passed away and all has become new. It is true, verse 5, it is true that when we've come to Christ in principle there's no more death. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, Death to the Christian has become, lost all of its terrors and has become but the doorway through which we pass from this life to the next life. What a wonderful way to look at death. And it is true that Christians should not cry or have pain or sorrow and that if they are Christians, even if they're dying of painful cancer, they have the resources in their body to be joyful in spite of the pain. But it's not true to say that we don't have any pain at all yet. Now, last night, before we expounded to some extent Revelation chapter 6, which it seems to me is dealing with the history of the world or certain major emphases of the history of the world from the heavenly enthronement of Jesus after his death and resurrection down through the second coming. You recall that just prior to that in Revelation chapter 5, we were given a description of heaven here and now. Here again, there's an awful lot of misunderstanding about that. There are many famous theologians who say Revelation chapter 5 is not describing heaven at all. It's describing the earthly church. But uh, that seems to me a preposterous position because we're told very clearly at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4 which introduces Revelation chapter 5, that John was lifted up into heaven and he saw a door opened in heaven and he saw in heaven the throne of Jehovah with the four living beasts surrounding it, with the four and twenty elders surrounding it, representing uh, the twelve tribes of Old Testament Israel, the Old Testament uh, church and the twelve apostles of the New Testament church. And while they are in heaven, and not on earth as some think, the choir in heaven, as I said last night, 
bring praises to the Lamb who has redeemed them and say, we shall reign on the earth. In other words, we're not on the earth at the moment, nor are we reigning on the earth at the moment. We are reigning, yes, we're reigning in heaven at the moment, but we're not yet reigning on the earth. That is still to come. To come, namely, when we get a Revelation 21-22, when heaven descends down onto the earth. So it seems to me, then, that what we have here in Revelation 21-22, although there are some elements of heaven here and now in it, and some elements of the Christian church here on earth, here and now in it, that the primary emphasis is on the final state of the believers, and it seems to me not in heaven anymore after the second coming, but on this earth. As Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit heaven. doesn't say that, though it's true enough. They shall inherit the earth. Of course, it means that as the church expands its power on earth here and now, we inherit more and more of the earth. But we'll never completely inherit the whole earth in this dispensation prior to the coming of the Lord, but we will inherit this earth and all of its goods one day after the coming of Jesus on the clouds back to this earth with his believers with him. With that in mind, then, let us now proceed to expounding the passage. That wasn't the sermon, that was the introduction. Now he says, Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now there's some people who see this word new and they say, well, that means a brand new heaven and a brand new earth because we read, do we not, in Second Peter chapter 3 that God will destroy this present heaven and the present earth by fire and then he will create new heavens and new earth in which righteousness will dwell. Brand new heavens. But that's not the meaning of Second Peter 3 and you can see it isn't because in Second Peter 3 the apostle is comparing the future destruction of the earth with the past destruction of this same earth at the time of the flood. You recall that's the way he starts in Second Peter. He says, just as this earth was previously destroyed by the great flood and will no more be destroyed by water, so shall it again be destroyed by fire in the future. Now let me ask you, the earth which we're on here and now, is it the same earth uh, which was there before the flood? You'd better believe it. Some things of this earth have changed. Uh, but it's possible that the flood wiped out some of the prehistoric animals. This depends, of course, as to whether you canonize uh, uh, Whitcomb and Morris's views or whether there are other views as to when these fossils may have been laid to rest. But I don't think any Christian would dispute the fact that the earth on which we're alive here and now is the very same earth and none other on which Noah uh, walked upon prior to the flood. And after having said that in Second Peter, the apostle goes on to say, similarly, this present world will be destroyed by fire. Notice, not annihilated by fire, but destroyed by fire. The bad things of it removed, like when you get uh, an amalgam between good gold and some cheap metal, and you burnish it in the fire, and the cheap metal is... The dross is burned up and cast out and what you're left with is the very same gold but purified that you had beforehand. So too will this earth, says the word of God, be burnished, be purified, and everything that's evil on it be removed. But the good things on it, the things that we have on it that are good here and now, that won't be annihilated. Why, that will be preserved. Now notice it says the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. 
That certainly means there won't be a sea on the new earth to come, but it doesn't say there won't be a sea, and there won't be an atmosphere, and there won't be an earth, and there won't be animals, and there won't be plants. It doesn't say that. It only says there shall be no more sea. And so apparently everything else that we have on this earth here and now, minus sin, there will be on the new earth to come. That's the obvious meaning of this passage. Now I can't tell you why there will be no more sea on the new earth. Except it's interesting, I think, that the world was originally covered by the oceans, by water, when the Spirit of God in creation moved over the face of the deep, and when the proud waves had to yield and go to their appointed places, Psalm 104. And I think it's perhaps significant that every kind of living creature followed Noah into the ark when the world was first destroyed, except the water creatures. For some strange reason, they didn't go into the ark. You may say, well, they wouldn't need to go into the ark because they would be preserved uh, in the sea uh, outside of the ark. True enough. But I think this perhaps shows that even in the destruction of the first world and the preservation of the living creatures, that God uh, was not at that point interested in preserving the aquatic animals. And if you follow... Whitcomb and Morris's view of the flood, of course, you will argue that for some peculiar reason, Noah did not invite the brontosauruses and other creatures that could swim, mind you, into the ark. He left them outside, and this, according to that theory, is supposed to have been the time that they um, were sedimentarily deposited in the rocks. For a purpose, then, that in the new earth, there will be no more sea. Now, this shows us that the new earth to come after the final judgment will not be exactly the same as this earth is now. There will be some things that we have on the earth here and now that you won't have on the new earth to come, such as, obviously, uh, ocean-living fish, unless those ocean-living fish then be living in the river of life that flows, flows from the throne of God, but in which case they're no longer ocean fish anyway and have undergone some modification. So no one's arguing that the new earth will be exactly the way in which this earth is, but we are arguing for a principle of continuity. In verse 2, the apostle says, Now I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Now those who like to over-symbolicize this and de-literalize it totally, and I'm not arguing for a literalistic interpretation. They say, well, this isn't really a city, you see. This is just the Christian church. And by church, not the building, but people. So what John really sees are people coming down from heaven, which are called the city of God. There's only one problem with this. It doesn't say that what comes down from heaven is the bride of Christ. It says what comes down from heaven at the end of verse 2 is prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Now, true enough, when you get married, you don't marry the jewelry and the rigmarole and all the Christmas tree ornaments that your bride's wearing. You marry the woman, the bride. But she wouldn't be so good-looking, would she, without clothes on uh, and without uh, the ornaments on at the bridal ceremony in the church. That's part and parcel of the event. And it's inconceivable to me that people can possibly have construed the city as being the body of Christ, period, 
while not including the environment, the building, the beautiful eternal dwelling place in which the bride shall live. You may get married and it may be very uh, romantic and you may not have any clothes or any jewelry or any place to live, but unless you find a place to live after you've gotten married, it's not going to be much of a marriage. That's the way it is. And so what comes down from heaven is the sum total of God's elect, human beings, yes, but with them uh, and surrounding them, their eternal concrete material dwelling place. You know, we confess that we believe in the resurrection of the flesh, of the body. And what comes down from heaven here is not a bunch of disembodied souls, but it's people with a body. And if they've got bodies, they need clothes, and perhaps they need some jewelry to make them look good, and they certainly need houses and mansions to live in, even as Jesus said, my father's house has many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so, but look, I go and prepare a place for you. And now here he is bringing this house with many mansions, this huge heavenly city of Jerusalem, down to the new earth with the inhabitants living inside of it. For the benefit of those who may think that this again is describing the church here and now on earth and not the church of the future that will at the end of history descend onto the new earth, I must point out that when we are saved and brought into the Christian church here and now, that is not heaven coming down to earth at all. But that is we earth creatures entering into a heavenly sphere here and now on earth. Jesus it was who came down from heaven to save us. But we don't come down to he from heaven uh, prior to getting saved. We come up from the pit of hell to enter into heaven when we get saved. And so you see, this is primarily a picture of the church at the end of history. At the end of the great judgment. In fact, it's mentioned in the book of Revelation right after the mention of the great judgment. And not so much a picture of the church on earth here and now. So the church in her eternal abode. Then verse 2 comes down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then we're told in verse 3 that the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. As I said before, that's not true of the Christian church on earth yet. And I think, very frankly, that when you and I stand before the judgment throne of Almighty God, as described in Revelation 20, the previous chapter, to give account of everything that we've ever done, I think that some of us are going to shed tears there at that point, even though we're pardoned. I think as our loved ones whom we had hoped were Christians are cast into hell on account of the hardness of their unconverted hearts that we will weep at the final judgment of the Lord. But after that, when the Lord has made all things new, I don't believe we'll ever weep again. And we'll ever worry about our dear ones, even our wives and children, if they should have died unregenerate, if they are in hell. We won't weep anymore. Because the Lord will have wiped away all tears from our eyes. Now notice it says the tears will be wiped away from the eyes. And you say, what? Will we have eyes on, when, on the new earth? Why, most assuredly. Does not Job say when he's groaning in pain, 
chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, I know my Redeemer liveth, and I know that he shall stand in the last day on the earth, notice not in heaven, on the earth, and that when after the skin worms have destroyed my body, after I've rotted in the grave and after my soul is in heaven and when my soul comes back on the clouds of heaven with Jesus and he with his powerful voice raises the decomposed remnants of the body I have now and fuses them into an immortal body out of this same body and none other, as the Westminster Confession says, with these eyes and none other shall I see the Lord. Oh, beloved, I tell you that when God says the word became flesh, that when we say with the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body, that God means this seriously, do not despise your body, do not despise your eyes, do not despise the hands that you have now, because these hands and these eyes and none other, says the Lord refashioned indestructibly after the, before, right before and immediately after the great white throne judgment of Jehovah will be the permanent abiding place of your soul unto all eternity, dwelling in a beautiful city with many mansions on this same earth and none other unto all eternity. Eternal life is not a pie in the sky by and by. Eternal life is living through the religious fullness of King Jesus after we've been saved on this earth here and now and glorifying him in all that we do. As Paul says, therefore glorify the Lord God even in your body. And unto all eternity too when we come back with heaven unto the new earth and so everything that we do and think all of our thoughts all of our cultural products will come to that in a minute are to be cleansed from their sin yes and then burnished and scintillating like diamonds are to radiate the goodness of God on the new earth to come unto all eternity now notice that the fearful and the unbelievers, verse 8, and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and liars, they will be in the, the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice it doesn't say all unbelievers in Jesus Christ. It says all those who break the Ten Commandments. And I tell you most solemnly in the name of the Lord that hell is going to be overflowing and some of the people that will be there will be people who've gone around on earth claiming to be born again, once saved, always saved, frozen, chosen Calvinist Christians who in spite of their phony testimonies will fry in hell forever because they died lying and whoremongers and murderers and sorcerers and people who have not truly loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you very solemnly to examine your soul this evening, to ask whether you perhaps are not among the number of those Judases who walked with the Lord Jesus, who looked like a Christian and quacked like a Christian and waddled like a Christian, but were never really regenerated at all. Because even though you may have preached the Ten Commandments to others, you broke it or you kept it selectively in your own life. When I say that I'm not preaching legalism, my brother and my sister, 
I'm preaching the unalterable requirements of the law of God and if you don't desire to keep it you'd better get a saviour who's kept it for you and if you get a saviour who's kept it for you why he'll put his Holy Spirit in your soul and he'll clean it up and he'll give you a desire not just to say the Ten Commandments is fine and I'm trying to keep it but more and more to live according to those commandments not that your keeping of the commandments is going to take you to glory not at all but because the spirit which was in Saviour, our Saviour, the law-keeping uh, uh, Redeemer, is given to you and to me by grace, and that we walk as he walked, and his spirit, and his earnestness, and his nature, his human nature, is imparted to you and I by grace alone. And so let us level with one another, and particularly with ourselves. Are we liars? Are we idolaters? Do we trust in anything except King Jesus? We need to ask this. Do we trust in the church as well as Jesus? Do we trust in our gold holdings as well as the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not against churches. I'm not against holding gold. But I'm asking you where your trust is. Do we trust in our nationality as well as King Jesus? And this to the women. Do you trust in your husband or your children rather than in King Jesus? Because if you're trusting in anything or anybody or any item in this world except wholly and completely in King Jesus, my friend, you are nothing less than a lost soul even though you've succeeded in convincing yourself and your neighbors and your friends that you're a Christian, you are nothing of the kind. So I would plead that you would look at yourself in the mirror of God's law and see how ugly you are and how ugly I am and that we will flee again to Jesus and ask him plenteously to forgive us and to work out in our lives the nature and the attitude and the love and the forgiveness of King Jesus himself. Now notice in verse 9 that one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues came to John and said, Look, come here and I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he showed not only the Lamb's Bride, the Lamb's Bride which dwelt in the city, but also the place where the Lamb's Wife was to dwell. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and a high mountain, and he showed me that great city, the Holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I say again that the Christian church now being gathered on earth is not being gathered out of heaven onto the earth. It's been gathered out of the earth out of the hellish parts of the earth and prepared for heaven. Having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious even like a jasper stone clear as crystal. And this city had a great wall and twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels and names written thereon which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel was reading a commentary on the book of Revelation recently and the person made the view, well, the gates are the angels. And that means you've got to enter into the church here and now through the teaching of the apostles. But that's not stated. It doesn't say that the gates are the angels. It says the names of the angels was written on the gates. That's something else. In the same way it says that everyone who gets to glory will receive a white stone with a name written on it that no one knows except he himself. That doesn't mean you and I are going to be the white stone. But we receive the white stone as a passport, as it were. 
as a symbol of victory. And so the names of the twelve angels are written on the gate as, and then it says after that, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel? The representatives of the Old Testament church. And then it tells us in verse 14, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were written. It doesn't say that the, the apostles were the foundations, but it says the names of the twelve apostles were written on the foundations, and that's something else. Beloved, we can no more dematerialize and spiritualize this beautiful city than we can spiritualize and dematerialize the resurrection of the body which you and I are going to get back to indwell unto all eternity. You may think it's very spiritual not to need a body unto all eternity, but God says you do need a body unto all eternity and you need a place where the body will have to rest too. Awful difficult to get over spiritual Christians to see this. They think Christianity is such a spiritual thing that it has no material implications. But as Archbishop Temple, whom I rarely quote with approval, once said, and I agree with this quote from him, Christianity is the most materialistic of all religions because the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld with our eyes and our ears his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God. And if Jesus Christ came to earth with a visible, material, touchable, palpable, uh, food-eating, and enjoyment-enjoying body, I put it to you that he who rose with the same body from the dead in which he was crucified, that when he comes we shall be like him when we see him like he is, and we shall do the same unto all eternity. If we don't believe that, I'm afraid we're not really Christian at this point. We're more Buddhistic. Their idea of the hereafter is a nirvana instead of a newer concrete as the fulfillment, the eschatological fulfillment of this life here and now, which gives meaning to the things we do in this life here and now. So notice that there are 24 names written on the gates and the foundation. Names of the Old Testament tribes, 12, and the names of the New Testament apostles, 24. And immediately you think, do you not, of the 24 elders who right now surround the throne of Jehovah in heaven and who sing, we shall yet reign on the earth. We're not there yet because we're in heaven at the moment, because we're dead. One day we'll come back to earth. There are those who would read all of these beautiful jewels, chalcedony, emeralds, diamonds, etc., out and say, well, you know, really, they're, they're, it's just a poetic description of the beauty that Christ sees in his bride. Well, of course, it's that too. And I want to tell you, I believe that we've got to construe this really as a world full of jewels, valuable jewels. And God created this world originally in the Garden of Eden, why we are told, are we not, that the river flowed out of Eden round the land of Havilah, and the gold of that land was good, and the gold was underground, and so were the jewels. And then God said to Adam, now Adam, you be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue the earth, and the sea, and the sky. And as Adam and his children did that, they would get round to 
exploiting the mineral resources and the gold of the earth and they would dig holes in the earth and extract the gold and turn it into beautiful objects until finally if they hadn't sinned they would have arrived at a, at a, a, a beautiful heavenly city such as we find described here in Revelation 21. But Adam failed and yet we still continue with our mining undertakings and our forestry and our farming as if he hadn't failed, but generally we don't do it to the glory of God, but to the glory of the death. But now comes Jesus, the second Adam, and he makes right everything that the first Adam made wrong, and he restores paradise lost to paradise regained, and that's what we have here. And now we find on the new earth to come the fulfillment, the consummation of what this earth should have become like and would have become like tended to by the stewardship of man had Adam not sinned at all and because the first the second Adam never sinned at all but did what the first Adam should have done but didn't do and what the second Adam is now doing from heaven through his spirit through his earthly church you and I as we empowered by the spirit of the second Adam go forth and subdue the earth and the sea and the sky to his glory and march forward from victory unto victory. And so there's a beautiful city waiting for us ahead. I'd love to go into the particulars, the jewel, the particulars of the jewels, the geological significance of all this, but time will not commit, so we must move on. Notice also that it says in verse 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. I didn't see a place of worship there. And so you can see this is not the church here and now on earth, because here and now on earth we do have places of worship. But beloved, on the new earth, we will no longer worship God one day a week, as man did in the Garden of Eden before the fall, and as we're doing now particularly since the fall. On the new earth there will be a perfect synthesis between Sabbath rest and work. We are told that even in heaven here and now, the saved praise God night and day without ceasing, seven days a week they don't even sleep, nor will we on the new earth to come. How absurd to say that this is a picture of the church here and now when all Christians sleep eight hours, or nearly eight hours, if you have an insomnia problem, which I had once in the past, but praise the Lord, don't have any longer. But we've got to sleep. We won't sleep when we come to the new earth. Not even when we're in heaven. No, we'll praise the Lord all day long. And there'll be no temple there. No place of worshipping the Lord. Well, why not? Ah, beloved, because we'll be worshipping the Lord in everything that we do. Whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, it will all be an act of worship. It will be the consummation of all worship. And we will worship God in the concrete, everyday, daily tasks that we will do unto all eternity on the new earth to come. And it's about time that we started preparing for that now, to regard our daily work, our washing of dishes in the kitchen, as Martin Luther says, as equally important to translating the Bible, thus Luther. Our work of repairing shoes, says Charles Haddon Spurgeon the Baptist, as just as important as being a missionary. And yet many of us don't believe this. 
We don't believe it because we haven't seen that work is a high and a holy and a sacred activity to the glory of God. We've compartmentalized our lives into a little bit of religion here on Sunday and a thoroughly pagan, secular approach to everything else that we're doing during the week. Well, that's not the way of heaven. It's not the heavenly life. And if we're truly saved here and now, then everything for us is a joy because whether we're eating or whether we're drinking or whatever we're doing, we're doing it to the glory of Jesus. And that's the way it's going to be on the new earth. And that's the way you should feel it in your life here and now, albeit in part if you're on the way to heaven. So there will be no temple in heaven for the simple reason that the Lamb is, pardon, no temple in the new earth because the Lamb himself is the temple of it. And verse 23, the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Now notice it doesn't say there will be no sun and no moon, although personally I think that's quite likely. But uh, there will be no sunrise or sunset, at least in that part of the new earth, inside of the heavenly city. Possibly there'll be part of the new earth outside of the heavenly city. Some say yes, some say no. I think yes, because it says a few verses later that the kings of the earth will bring their honor and their glory through the portals into the city, which is why some people say this can't possibly be the final state in the future, but it must mean that here and now, as kings and important people are getting converted, they're entering into the Christian church from the world here and now. I'll deal with that aspect in a minute. Now notice it says in verse 24, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Perfectly true that here and now when we get saved and join the Christian church that the kings and the rich people are to bring the honor and the glory of their nations into the Christian church here and now. That's true. It's true that when we're saved here and now we are to bring our goods to the Lord. That we are to bring our national culture and languages to the Lord and our jewels and everything that we possess and our talents and our spare time and serve God with these things here and now on the new earth. That's true. But there's more in these texts than just that. It goes on to say that on the new earth to come, we shall continue bringing into the new earth the good things that we were producing previously while on earth. Let's see this. Verse 25, 26. The gates of the city shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Verse 24 says they do bring the honor and glory of the nations into it, which the Christians were doing in John's time. But now he goes further. Not only they do bring the honor and glory of the nations into it, but they shall bring the honor and glory of the nations into it. In other words, all the beautiful things of the nations now being produced, beautiful music of Beethoven, Rimsky Korsakov from Russia, the beautiful carpets of Persia and of Afghanistan, the tremendous economic and technological potential of the United States of America, the glory of the folklore of the Irish, all of this 
will be cleansed from what is sinful in it and will be brought into the eternal abode of God's people on the new earth, the glory and the honor of the nations of the world, the nations of them that are saved, and will be enjoyed forever. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you think you get really bored on the new earth after a couple of billion zillion years just by saying praise the Lord, hallelujah, and greeting sisters and brothers? Of course you would. Ah, but if you're going to spend millions and zillions of years listening to the beauties of Tchaikovsky and Puccini and admiring the, the sculptures of Michelangelo, all of them then, uh, minus their sinful accretions that they have at the moment, but the substance of what is good in them here and now, and then you're going to talk to your fellow Christians about that, and you're going to, and you're going to uh, enjoy them in the concrete, down-to-earth sense. Well then, heaven is a place worth going to, and the new earth is a place worth going to. Because you're not a disembodied spirit floating around with a heart from cloud to cloud. No, no, you are a fully-fledged human being with a body and with interests of art and science and culture and literature. And if we realize that this is what we're headed for, we're going to take Christian education seriously here and now. Now I want to sell you on a Christian school. We've got to have Christian schools. And we've got to have schools that won't only tell kids how to get saved, but will also tell children how to undertake geography and history and mathematics and appreciate art and literature and science to the glory of God for the simple reason that these are not worldly things when viewed through the perspective of the Bible. These are things that we are going to be with and enjoy on the new earth to come forever and forever and forever. And if ever we get tired of looking at all the millions of things we'll have there, while the Lord will make us produce still more. Final word on this point, as we must hasten to wind up. You'll notice that it says the kings of the earth bring their glory and their honor into the heavenly city which again proves that the bride of Christ, the kings of the earth, is not identical with the heavenly city. The heavenly city is their dwelling place because the kings of the earth who are the bride of Christ are going into and out of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is not the church. It's the place where the church will dwell. Now notice that it says, that thou shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. This can't be the visible church on earth here and now, because there are Judases and liars and abominable people in the visible church, some of them, alas, here and now on earth. could be argued this is the invisible church here and now on earth, but then, of course, it's presented rather visibly. And what's more, it's in the future tense. So it's pointing to the new earth to come. And now let's wind this up. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. We're going to drink on the new earth, beloved. We're going to drink the best, never fluorinated water that you ever did taste. And it's going to be clear as crystal. You say, oh, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that God will destroy uh, food and the stomach 1 Corinthians chapter 6 yes it does but the word for destroy again doesn't mean annihilate it means to 
uh, undergo a change and to be perfected forever. Of course there will be food on the new earth. Says distinctly in the next verse, in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruits every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Ah, we're back in the Garden of Eden almost, where Adam had a body and where he ate food and where he enjoyed it. But observe, there is no longer one tree of life on the new earth to come as there was in the Garden of Eden. No, no, there is now a whole grove of the tree of life on either side of the river. There was a stage when I used to envisage one tree here with a big hole in the bottom of the trunk with the river flowing through the hole, something like those giant sequoia trees in California where buses go through the through the hole in the bottom of the stump. But you'll see that this is taken from Ezekiel 48, I believe it is, or 47, at the end of which it's quite clear that there's a whole grove of the trees of life on either side of the river. And that's what John's referring to here. And notice how productive they are. They yield every month uh, fruits. Now, of course, it was only after the flood that God said, from now on there shall be... Uh, harvest time and sowing time and cold and heat and summer and winter all the days of the earth. Exactly how productive the trees were in the Garden of Eden we don't know. And I don't think they were quite this productive. There weren't as many trees as that and here we now have the ultimate harvest of the labor of our hands working in the sweat of our brow and subduing the earth to God's glory and making the trees more and more and more fruitful. And now here we have them on the new earth forever and ever and will partake of that, those, the fruit of that tree forever. I was reading an article just yesterday, I think it was, by a famous natural scientist who said God is perfectly capable of putting all the necessary vitamins and protein into the food of the tree so that we could exist on that alone. Fruit of the tree and drinking of the water of the crystal river. And then it says, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Ah, say the others, yes, this is obviously not the new earth to come. This is the church here and now, because you see, the nations still have to be healed. But once we get to glory, why, there will be no nations to be healed. Not so fast, not so fast. It is true that the gospel does heal the nations when they believe here and now, but the word heal doesn't just mean to fix up something that's broken, means that too. The word healed also means to keep healthy or healthy that which has never been broken or which has been totally restored. You see, on the new earth, we're not just going to be wound up like clockwork and nothing can go wrong again. Nothing will go wrong again, but every month we will have health food, healthy food, healing food, and the nations will be preserved forever in that finalized, consummate form. I'm closing down now. There'll be no more curse. Well, there's still a curse on this earth, according to Romans chapter 8, in spite of the church being on earth. And that curse will remain right down to the second coming of the Lord, though it may be much diminished, and I think it will be. But then, brother and sister, there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the, of the Lamb shall be in it. That isn't true yet. And his servants shall serve him. How will they serve him? Same way that Adam served God in the Garden of Eden. In the concrete everyday things of life. Which is why we should serve God with the work of our hands. And in our everyday jobs here and now. This is religion. This is service of the living God. 
It's not a worldly, secular thing. It's significant. It has eternal importance. And O oh, glory of all glories, verse 4, they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. We shall see the face of Jesus. We don't see it yet, do we? But then we shall see him from face to face. At the moment we're told we walk by faith. But one day we shall walk by beholding him face to face with Christ our Savior. I wonder what the face of Jesus looks like. The face of the one who wore the crown of thorns that bled so profusely on Calvary to serve the likes of me and you. Oh, what a glory and a joy to gaze on his face. And the love which sent him to the cross to die for us, but notice it says to his name shall be in their foreheads. And oh, I hope we have some Baptist brethren here tonight. The name of God the Triune, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you see, will then be written on the forehead, which is why Presbyterians write that Triune name on the forehead when they baptize people here and now. Of course, if you've been under the water, I suppose you can say that the drops of water have gotten on your head too and elsewhere, so this is a valid baptism. But the name of the Lord is inscribed unto all eternity on the forehead. And to me, this is a very powerful argument for sprinkling on the forehead in the name of God, the triune God, because on the new earth we will wear his name unto all eternity. And let us not fear the mark of the beast, some people have all kinds of alarmist ideas. Remember, Johnny Foburn sitting here showed me a book about two years ago uh, published by some weird group that believe that very soon uh, 666 branding iron is going to be rammed on the forehead of people and it'll be the great tribulation. What utter nonsense. What utter nonsense. We have the mark of the triune God on our forehead and no triune 666 can lay hold of us even because we belong to Jesus. Oh, beloved, we've got to understand our baptism. We've got to understand that we bear the mark of Jesus and in all of these things we are more than conquerors and we will go forward through this world from victory unto victory and no antichrist so-called can possibly hold us back. It's not possible. How absurd that Antichrist can be more powerful than Christ? Not at all. Notice in verse 5, There shall be no night there, but there is here and now in the church on earth. They need no candle, but we do now. Neither light of the sun, because the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Not just reign for a thousand years, beloved, but reign forever and ever and ever and rule with King Jesus even as he promises previously in Revelation chapter 5. We have been redeemed, they sing in heaven, and we shall reign on the earth. He shall reign and we shall reign forever. you believers but if you do believe it is it not time for us to bring our earthly works for Jesus here and now into heavenly or rather new earthly perspective so that even now we will eat 
and drink and sing and work and do all things to the glory of this wonderful Jesus whose name we already wear on our foreheads and whom we will serve on this earth and none other now and forever Amen Let us pray O Lord our God how great and how wonderful and how rich are thy blessings we do not pretend to understand them all exhaustively Lord they overpower us on account of their strength on account of the puniness of our minds. But oh, we thank thee, Lord, that we can understand some of it, and that it is altogether glorious, and that we are passengers on the way to glory, and that no devil and no antichrist can possibly stop us, because we are thine redeemed, branded with thy triune name, and thou who hast begun this work in us shall perfect it. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said, 
that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.